This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. I heard Brian speaking on Democracy Now! from Taiwan about the perspectives of people on the ground there and how they weren't being represented, and so I wanted to reach out uh, right away. Let's go to the interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves, so tell us who you are. Yeah, so my name is Brian Hugh. Uh, I am one of the founding editors of New Bloom magazine. New Bloom is a left-wing publication. We cover social movements, social issues, uh, also arts and culture. We were founded in 2014 after the Sun Farm Movement in Taiwan, which involved the month-long occupation of the Taiwanese legislature. And so a lot of us were people that participated in the movement or involved in the occupation and that sort of thing. And so it's been about eight years. Yeah, about eight years. Wow. Yeah, I saw you speaking on Democracy Now! recently, and you said in response to the idea of the One China policy, quote, can I ask why we're talking about that 50-year-old agreement without talking about the wishes of the Taiwanese people in the slightest, justifying that the present actions China takes are somehow justified toward Taiwan because of these two imperial powers, the U.S. and China, deciding the fate of Taiwan, end quote. So from your understanding... What are the perspectives of people and groups in Taiwan, both to the U.S. and China as global powers, and also specifically the reaction to the recent visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, I mean, I think that Taiwanese people oftentimes just really want to be left alone to live their lives. I mean, everyone differs and they have their own opinions, and I can't speak for everybody, obviously. But I think particularly with the Pelosi visit, there's a lot of discussion in the international world of, of this being, uh, to quote a Financial Times editorial, media, just that this would bring Taiwan or drag the world to some brink of war. However, there's not a lot of discussion of Taiwanese people who would be directly in the line of fire and are to China, and probably China, if there's any reprisals, would go after Taiwan directly. And so I think that was concerning, that supposedly there is this concern about global war, but not discussed who are directly affected. Uh, and then, for example, what are the views of Taiwanese people? And I think particularly on the left, the sentiment has sunk in that if we just abide by these agreements from 50 years ago, China will does not do anything. And I think that's never the case. I mean, when have imperial powers ever really uh, just agreed to abide by the agreements that they settle among themselves and just chill it with their territorial ambitions? Right. And, you know, as you look at those opinions, you know, on the left and the broader opinions in Taiwan, you know, what role, if any, do you think the current war in Ukraine is playing in the perspectives of those living in Taiwan? Definitely. And so I think, for example, after the war uh, in Ukraine, there's much concern about the possibility that Taiwan would be next. Uh, the fact is there hasn't been a kind of directly annexationist invasion on a full scale like this. And also Ukraine is much smaller than Russia. I think there's also the view that Ukraine and Russia are, or Ukraine and Taiwan are somewhat similar, for example, just regarding the cultural claims. Uh, Putin claimed that Ukraine is not a country. It was just created by Lenin. And so it can be annulled today by Russia. And there's kind mm. of a, a claim about imperial Russia, too. It also draws sort of parallels. It's like people particularly saw themselves in having common cause with Ukrainians, as they did, for example, Hong Kongers before in 2019 during the protests that took place there. 
And so I think that is uh, quite interesting. Uh, I think that that particularly then there's much more discussion of this. And so there's also concern that China would get antsy that seeing the world response to Ukraine. They can either decide that, well, okay, these economic sanctions or, or supplying Ukraine with weaponry this is too much for us now. We're going to back off on Taiwan for a while. Or they might decide, well, actually, they weren't able to stop Russia. They still kept going. So, you know, it's now or never. Better do it now under Biden or not, you're possibly, you know, better do it now rather than the future under some other president who we don't know who that will be. Mm. And are you seeing new or increasing retaliation from the Chinese government? And can you discuss what form that's taking so far? Yeah, so there are military exercises now taking place around Taiwan. Um, and this is the closest it's ever been. Uh, the, the, the third Taiwan Straits crisis in the 1990s. The live fire exercise that China did then as a display of force took place a little bit farther from Taiwan. Um, and this, some of the, the uh, exercises, parts of the areas that which are taking place cross into Taiwan's sovereign territorial waters. Uh, yesterday then, China lobbed missiles over Taiwan, uh, mm. over Taipei actually, and, uh, hyper- and so some crashed into Japan's exclusive economic zone, that's Japan's waters. So this was the potential to draw Japan into this, mm. uh, this, this imbroglio. And so I think that this is a question now. Right, and you mentioned previously that the U.S., and China are two imperialist powers. What similarities or differences do you see in the way the U.S. and Chinese governments exert their power specifically in your region? Absolutely, and I think those are sharp parallels. For example, uh, China also has a regime of domestic incarceration, and it draws on rhetoric that is derived from the U.S. in some cases. For example, the anti-terror rhetoric, anti-terrorism rhetoric that the U.S. used for the uh, U.S. war on terror. This is used to justify imprisoning Uyghurs in uh, re-education camps, quote-unquote, for de-radicalization, mm. quote-unquote, but really target them for their religion. Um, and then I think in terms of international actions, in terms of China trying to expand its influence, I mean, the model for an imperial hegemon that it has in the world right now is the U.S. And so, for example, constructing overseas bases, that's maybe something China would be interested in doing in the future. Uh, I mean, you look back at history, and there's a period in which the U.S. thought the way to expand outward was to achieve oceanic power, uh, for example, going to the Pacific, reaching westward. And I think particularly for China, this is uh, also part of it, for example, expanding towards the uh, Asia-Pacific, uh, the, the first island chain, for example, of which Taiwan is, a, is, is, something, is a possession that China would then like to have in order to expand its influence in the region. And, and I think China has in real ambitions to become a power, and that all involves expanding your power outwards towards the ocean, towards the Asia-Pacific, towards other countries. And I think that's why also the South China Seas are, are such contested uh, territory. And do you see any differences in the way that they exert their uh, imperial ambitions there? Um, I think there's definitely a difference in, in rhetoric, for example. I mean, there's a, a rhetoric of national rejuvenation in China. Um, I mean, mm. the U.S. was uh, comparatively was talking about, for example, creating a new country and that this would develop as, as just, a, you know, the British Empire is fading, American Empire. There's a time of American Empire. I mean, this is there are some similarities in the discourse of, like, American Empire is fading, now's the time for China. But its phrase is national rejuvenation, uh, restoring past glories, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I also think that it, some of the comparisons are a bit misleading between... Uh, for example, China, there's the strong influence from the Soviet Union in terms of how ethnic minorities are thought of, and that's not mm-hmm. something that you have present in the U.S. Uh, so that's how Xinjiang in with the Uyghurs or Tibetans or the 50 other or so ethnic minorities that China has. That is a very specific framework. And I think then the uh, 
for example, the party structure is another difference in society that you do have the party in different aspects of society, anything from corporations to um, you know just businesses or in schools and that sort of thing. I mean, it's not the way the West depicts it as this kind of you know eleventh agent of control everywhere. I mean, it is some, is it, but it is a very different government structure. For example, mm. that's another institution of social control. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience in the U.S. about Taiwan or the ongoing? imperialist escalation between China and the U.S. that may be going on? So I think uh, what's particularly concerning then is if it gets stuck in this pattern of tit-for-tat escalation. I mean, for example, China probably won't go too far this time. Uh, there's, I think a lot of that is perhaps overblown. Uh, but in the future, they might do more exercises of this sort. It might become much more regularized. And to be honest, whenever you do have these exercises, even if there's no intention to conduct an invasion, which would not happen because it cannot happen without warning, we would see that and check that through satellite imagery, uh, troops gathering on the coasts of China. Um, but, you know, it could potentially see a blockade, and that's that's part of how this has been framed by the Chinese government. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, uh, uh, you know, whenever you do have something like this, there's potential for an incident, let's say a fishing vessel, just a civilian's fishing vessel is in the area, gets shot on and destroyed, right. and then people are angry, and that stirs up sentiments in the area. Like, what if, for example, uh, that missile that ended up in Japan's exclusive economic zone, what if it hit a Japanese fishing vessel and mm-hmm. it blowed up? That would have potentially escalated things much further. And so there's always a potential for accident. Uh, China is in the habit of conducting air incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone, the area around Taiwan. That's not Taiwan's airspace, but it's where planes identify themselves to avoid misrecognition. Um, and so when this happens, I mean, Taiwan conducts air interceptions and sends its own fighters to uh, warn Chinese planes to identify themselves and, and that sort of thing. Well, what if someone gets trigger happy on either side and pulls the trigger? Or if there's an accident, what if they accidentally crash into each other or something like that? Then national sentiment will be stirred up and that could be quite dangerous. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and, and share with us. No, no problem. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, take care. Take care. That special interview was recorded last Thursday evening, August 4th in the United States, and the morning Friday, August 5th in Taiwan. That's our special interview. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.